Maybe it's one of the magic bird skills he learned when he was living with the bird. I will take the that. magic bird. I will take that that the magic bird somehow gave him a magic technique that magically magicked his way up there. <laughs> Greetings, travelers. Welcome back to Tales from the Enchanted Forest with your animal companions, Fox and Sparrow. Hey, everybody. We're so glad to be back here in the Enchanted Forest. And I think we've got some really good stories coming up in the next little while. And I'm glad we're starting it off with this one. Yeah. So if you've been following us, then you'll know we were on a break because of life. But we are back with the new series on heroes. Just as fairy tales are made up of stock characters, legends are made up of heroes, and these stories not only shape cultures, but they shape the way literature transforms and evolves. Really, we're asking the question, what makes a hero? Is it the journey, the characteristics, the actions, the lineage? Or is a hero just an ideological concept that is fluid enough for us to place on anyone, from Persia's Rostam to Achilles to Batman? Yeah, uh, we came up with this idea shortly after we covered the Star Wars fairy tale. Hashtag Star Wars is a fairy tale. <laughs> um, and we thought, hey, heroes are great. And we love talking about the hero's journey and all of that. Why don't we just uh, cover more of it? And so we found this amazing story. And that's what we're going to do. Our story today is for Dosi's Persian epic, The Shahnameh. The poem, while a chronicle of 50 monarchs, also acts as a mirror for princes, with heroes and kings preoccupied with their own ethical values. Now, before anyone gets on to me, I'm using the term Persian epic, not Iranian epic, because Ferdowsi was part of the Persian Empire. However, the stories he uses and his sources include Turkish, Afghan, Iranian, Indian, Tajik, all sorts of different places. The Shahnameh is to Persia what the Iliad, the Odyssey, and the Aeneid were to Greece and Rome, and what the Mahabharata and Ramayana were for India. They are epic poems and stories that use a mix of folk history and intricate storytelling. So, would you also classify something like the Arthurian legends to fall under this similar category? Or is it different enough that, like, no? <laughs> While the legend of King Arthur does fall into somewhat of a category because it does help shape the idea of a nation. So it does help kind of give you the idea of what the Knights of the Round Table were, what the ethics were, what the kind of the culture was at the time in England. However, these were specifically epic poems or epic stories, whereas there isn't really one source for the Arthurian legends. I'm sure they were at some point, but not that we have any. Um, some of the stories from the tales of King Arthur and the Round Table and Merlin, they come from all different places. And so it's hard to pinpoint one exact source or one exact story. Whereas here we have something like the Iliad, we have something like the Odyssey, where even though the authors might have been a couple of different people, a couple of different poets, we have one kind of source for it that we can refer to. Okay. And because of the way our culture is now, we just everyone has such easy access to all these materials and whenever someone writes something new it's like a easily available online just a place where everyone can get it do you think we can ever have something like this again for like future generations or that would represent like our not just generation but like culture at the time we might and we might not the reason why these stories are so foundational is because they give people an identity so you can look at the iliad and the odyssey and go okay those were the grecians those were the trojans with the Aeneid, you can trace back the lineage and say, oh, Rome was founded from the Trojan princes. And so I think it'd be very difficult because we already have established cultural identities now. 
We have, you know, nationalism, so people are kind of under the banner of whatever the flag they're in. If borders were to fail, if, you know, we become a very globalized society and we have to revert back to finding our identity and stories, we might. But at the moment, I don't really see how it's possible. Cool, 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 cool. I mean, there is the, there is the option, you know, option C, which is we go through a nuclear war and then we have to rebuild <laughs> society and we have to rebuild our stories and give ourselves a new identity. So that might be something. Hey, I think I've read some stories like that before. <laughs> Dystopian or post-post-apocalypse. Yeah, those kind of stories. It's always, I always feel weird when I really enjoy them. It's like, yeah, this sounds really fascinating. Maybe we should just blow up the earth and then wait a couple generations and experience this adventure. <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather not, thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, no, obviously not. But it's like, wow, this is really cool. Anyways, I'm getting off topic. Just it's okay. genuinely curious what you thought on that topic. Yeah, I mean, stories like the Shaname, they are kind of folk history where there's enough history, there's enough in there that you can tie back to actual fact, but there's also enough that you're like, right, this is too fantastical or this is obviously made up or this is a bit, you know, hard to believe. But they're all stories that help generate something different. So it's not just about the stories themselves. It's about how we feel about them, the messages they send, the values that are imparted Mm -hmm. in us. Um, A lot of it is religious. A lot of it is cultural. And so we get to learn about kind of what the life was like back then. It's just really cool because, like, you listed a couple of other examples of this, but, like, it does feel like there is only a very small handful of the equivalent of this is to other cultures and stuff. Mm -hmm. And as we were kind of saying, it sounds like it would take a long time to establish one of these. So it just feels like they're so limited on the number of these we technically have. Um, It's just a very cool pocket of folklore and stories. Yeah. I mean, the epic itself starts from the beginning of inception and then carries on towards the Arab invasions in the 7th century. So it's a long frame of time it's trying to cover. And just with that, we do make reference to characters mentioned at different points in time throughout the book. For example, the story we're going to start with is a story of Sam. And Sam is the dynastic head of the Nariman family, which rules Sistan. He has close ties with the Persian king. So we mention other characters that appeared earlier in the story. And lineage is really important to the Persians here. So who you were related to, who your you know father was, who his father was, it'll co- it'll come up. So what we'll what I'll try to do is I'll try and give a frame of reference as to who this person is and why they're actually important. Thank you. <laughs> it is hard to follow at times, even if you're listening, just because it covers fifty different monarchs. It's hard to keep in mind, you know, who's the hero, who is the father, who is the grandfather, who was the hero, what did he do, but. It is always enjoyable kind of to break it up into pieces. And that's why we decided what better way to begin a series on heroes than with the great heroic dynasty spanning the generations with Sam, Zal, and Rostam. So my retelling is a mix of the audiobook translated by Ahmed Saguri, created by Hamid Rahman, and narrated by Mark Thompson. We've also used the Dick Davis translation and the complete translation from A.G. Warner and E. Warner. For a complete retelling and the sources that we used, as well as other resources like maps, family trees, and miniatures, please see our website, www.talesfromtheenchantedforest.com. I love whenever you add the www, because it always feels like we're getting thrown back into the 90s era, <laughs> and I'm here for it. Part 1. The Tale of Sam and the Simurgh. Sam, the renowned knight and hero of Iran, had everything he wanted except for a son. 
He prayed and longed for one, and at last he received a son. But for all his beauty, the baby was born with the shock of white hair. Ah, I see he went to the anime school of protagonizing and got himself a unique hair color for the story. Next, he will need to get an empty seat right next to a window in his home classroom. What do you think? Well, I think God has other plans for him, Ooh. as opposed to a window in a school classroom. Well, that sounds like an anime protagonist <laughs> still. He does have the shock of white hair, and it makes him stand out enough because he's a baby and they liken him kind of like to an old man. So he's got Benjamin Button syndrome, but he's got this, you know, normal looking body, but then it's just his hair. And they're kind of like, well, is he a demon? Is he cursed? He's got one flaw, therefore we must get rid of him. <laughs> For a week, no one would tell Sam until at last a maid went to him. Seeing his son's hair, Sam complained bitterly to God about this turn of fate and wondered as to which great sin he had committed to be given a son that would be called a demon's child. His baby was like a leopard, of two skins and of two worlds. Sam did what almost every father of an ill-omened prince does. He abandoned his child in the mountains. Except he chose to have the boy sent to where the legendary bird, the Simurgh, lives. Mm. What kind of bird are we talking about here? A phoenix? A siren? A yellow-crowned night heron? The Simurgh is kind of like the phoenix. It is a legendary bird of Persian mythology that is a huge bird, giant enough to carry an elephant or a whale. It has the body of a phoenix with the head of a dog and a human face. It's said that the bird has seen the destruction of the world three times over, and like the phoenix, it combusts after a thousand years to come back to life. That's pretty intense. The bird is kind of an all-knowing bird. Um, sometimes they say it, it has its nest on the tree of life, but the stories change depending on what you're reading. Here, I'd like to think it's just this great, fantastical bird that sometimes will eat children, sometimes will not, and maybe that's why some chose to send his son there. Neat. I'm surprised you haven't heard of it, Severo, given that you're a bird. Excuse me, not all birds know all other birds. Thank you very much. Someone's missed the conference of the birds this year. Look, it was a really <laughs> busy year, and, you know, they released uh, the new Doctor Strange movie, and I had the choice between the conference or seeing the new movie, and I just uh, <laughs> I made the bad call. But, you know, <laughs> it is what it is. <laughs> when the Simurgh left her nest in the Alvaro's Mountains to feed her chicks, she spotted the crying boy left in the scorching sun. She thought to herself, even the leopard leaves his cubs in the shade. Going down to pick up the helpless child, she thought to feed her chicks with him. So the mighty bird grasped him in her claws and returned him to her chicks. However, God had other plans, and when the birds looked upon the child, they were astonished to find themselves pitying the creature. Over time, the Simurg raised the boy that she named Dastan, like her own, and eventually he grew into a young man. Just an interesting bit of trivia here, and a little bit of etymology. Jordan Mechner, the creator of the Prince of Persia series, named his protagonist what we would say Dastan, after he found it in the Shahnameh. Dastan is a tricky one for me because when I first read it, I read it as the Persian word for story, which is Dastan. But his name is more of like, it's hard because I, it's just a slight difference, is Dastan which can mean a trickster. So the initial name that he's been given was by the Simurgh. 
Some sources do claim that the Simurgh wasn't the one that gave him the name. It was just the name that he was referenced to later on in life. And when writing the poem for Dosi, just mentioned it in the beginning. But it depends on which version you're reading, which translation you're reading. I like to believe the trickster saw this child growing up and he was a bit of a trickster. He was a bit of a rogue character. And so she named him that lovingly, like a pet name. Hmm. If you had a random child dropped on you with platinum blonde hair or white hair, as it were, <laughs> what would you name them? Um, a random child with white hair. I don't know. Like, yeah, I feel you, like you have been assigned this child randomly <laughs> and you, you have to raise them because of the arbitrary rules of this question. <laughs> so what are you naming him? Benjamin for Benjamin Button, because <laughs> that's now the only name I can think of. <laughs> Benji! <laughs> I love it. I can't think of a single like, What do you name a hero? It's hard. You you name them Jack, and then you continue. <laughs> <laughs> Don't no. say Jack um, Frost. Don't say Jack Frost. Come on. Well, no, because it's just the, the most, at least for Western, it's like one of the most stock character names you would give. Oh, Jack Springins. No, call. I would never name a child after... No, I can't name a child Jack well, because at first I thought you were referencing Jack Frost and that's okay because Jack Frost is cool. But then you said the stock character and I was like, ew, Jack Springins, my mortal enemy. Well, I don't know. I feel like Jack comes up as a really standard name for like a hero type character. There's Jack Ryan, Jack. I'm sure there's more. I can't think of them because they've all left my head. <laughs> um... <laughs> But yeah, anyways, uh, not the point, not the point. But Jack Frost is kind of the other thought that came into my head. That's all I'm picturing right now, now that we say that. It's like, okay, we got Jack Frost as our, uh, as our main protagonist right now. He <laughs> just happens to be named something different. Dustin? Dustan? Dustin. It's, it's kind of... Dustin. It's, it's a bit... It's, it's hard because even I don't really know because I tried looking it up. I tried asking my mom. But Farsi and, like, Farsi's just different enough now that I couldn't really find any sources to say that his name means trickster. It's just all articles mm. saying that, oh, this means this. And I'm like, right, but where is that coming from? What's the etymology of the word? Um, thankfully, someone did post up the difference in, in the language, like the actual Persian word that was used. Mm. But my Persian reading is not good enough to be able to tell the difference, really. So I was like, right, <laughs> this is great. So I'll put that on the website and someone else with more knowledge can read it and let me know meanwhile as his son had been growing up in a nest with the simurgh sam had trouble sleeping and in his dreams various riders would come and accuse him of abandoning his child and tell him of god's displeasure with him sages and clerics in his dreams berated him for calling himself a knight when his child was being raised by a creature sam couldn't bear it and so he gathered his army and headed for the mountains to claim his son but seeing the great impenetrable mountains and the fantastical Simurgh on top, he bowed before them and called for divine intervention to retrieve his son. From the top of the mountain, the all-knowing Simurgh knew it was time to bade her child to his father. She told him to go to the Kyanid court and meet his fate. The boy was not happy to leave and wanted to keep her copper feathers as his only crown, but knew he could not stay. The Simurgh could not part with him just like that, and so she gave him two of her feathers and told him to burn them if he needed her help, and she would appear as a black cloud. She would never forsake him her protection and would bring him back to her nest and safety if he needed it. 
and with that, she flew him down to meet his father. Hold up a minute. Are you telling me that we have a positive female mother figure in the story that is alive and just fine at the end of it and they leave on good terms? Yeah, we have a good... She's not dead. She's not, you know, evil. There's no evil stepmother in this story. I think she's one of two mother figures we see in this story, and both of them are good mother figures. So I'm just kind of like, well, you know, where's the catch? Yeah, no, like, I'm just so stunned by this. The Shahnameh itself does have some great Persian women who are queens, who are, um, you know, they have control of their own lives, control of their husbands, control of their own destinies. And so when we have in this story that we're doing today, we have two mother figures who, surprisingly, we can't tick off the bingo of dead. Um, (laughs) And they just, they exist. They're good to their kids. And it's a bit of a surprise, really. For people who haven't read Iranian poetry, if you read Iranian poetry, the mother is one of the greatest, you know, characters you can have. But in our stock fairy tales, we often have these immortalized dead moms. Yeah, sad. For the characters, we don't really get to know the moms that well, so it's not really that bad for us. (laughs) But, I mean, here we can tick off, I guess, strange, abandoning, not really their father, except he comes back, which is good, but he left for, I guess, like 20 years or 16 years of his son's life. I've got thoughts on this, Dad. (laughs) So seeing his son made some swell with pride and glory. Here was a youth that while he had no hand in raising, and, you know, putting the whole abandoning him thing aside, was worthy as the share of Naraman, the son that would uphold his honor. (sighs) This deeply bothers me that Dad gets off scot-free for abandoning his child to grow up with bird people. And then he just marches on him with an army and takes him away from his newfound family. It's like, how many times can we wreck this kid's childhood and, like, sense of family security? I don't know. And then he's, like, proud of his son. Like, I don't know. You finish the sentence. I'm mad. I, it's fine. I mean, we, can, we are mad at him. But the thing about the Shonama is it's what I said earlier about it being a mirror for princes. It's not all perfect characters who just exist in isolation, who exist in kind of these glorified um, True. situations where they always make the right choices. The, the characters in the Shanamat, they're, they're flawed characters. They sometimes make problems. They sometimes react badly. And the whole religious subtext that carries on throughout the book, we have God as this figure that punishes, but you have free will. So you do what you need to do but you will be punished. You will face the repercussions of what you've done. And there is a really complex kind of situation with Sam and his son because that kind of father figure abandonment issues, it continues on throughout not only Sam's story, but Zal's and his son Rustam's stories. We see kind of these father figures who end up being murdered or being killed time and time again within this kind of family tree because There's so much built up anger. There's so much built up resentment. And as much as you can say you forgive someone, that punishment that you carry with you, that kind of resentment you carry with you, it continues. Um, And we do see kind of this continue on later on. We talk about Rostam, the great Iranian hero, and Zal's son. We see that he will also have kind of these issues of abandonment. So it's not like he gets off scot-free. It's that generational trauma that will continue to hurt them. But at this point, 
he realizes he's made a grave mistake and it's something that he doesn't hold proudly. He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't forget about it. He does, you know, bow his head to the Simurgh. He does bow his head to the mountains to God and says, listen, I made this mistake. It'll be the greatest mistake of my life. Let me fix it. Let me bring my son home. Although it does annoy me in the text, he does go, oh, look at this worthy, noble son. I'm like, yeah, but you didn't do anything to make him noble or worthy. That's just how he is. Yeah, he was always like this. And also, like, the one thing, the one flaw that he had and the thing you had a problem with is still the same. Uh, I do appreciate interesting characters with development and stuff, but man, just the abandoning a child and then taking credit for it later, that, mm, mm, mm. That bothers me. (laughs) (laughs) And fair enough. We can't just let the fathers go off scot-free whenever they show up again. And we're like, we're supposed to be excited that they're here. that They bothered doing their job that they didn't do in the beginning. But don't worry. His son is petty enough that almost every chance we'll see that he does bring it up. He does go, oh, remember that time you abandoned me? Yeah, I remember. That wasn't fun. In the not-so-distant land of Persia, King Manusher heard of Sam's retrieval of his son and bid Sam to come straight away so they could celebrate. If you're asking, who is this new king and why can he tell Sam what to do? It's because Manusher was the king of Kyanid, the Kyanid court as a whole, which was the Persian court, and therefore had a greater power and respect attributed to him than Sam. Sam was more of a knight, so he fought with Manusher when the latter avenged his father's death, and they remained close allies and advisors. The family dynasties of these two men will be important for the story that continues, and then the story of Rostam, because the king-hero relationship is a big relationship and a big trope. When we talk about heroes, when we talk about heroes like Achilles and Agamemnon, it's the same kind of thing, and the relationships fall apart, and that kind of changes how we view the heroes and how we view the monarchy. When they arrived at the Persian court, Sam's son, now given the name Saul, which means those with albinism, was presented to the king. The king had Saul's horoscope read, and it was declared that Saul would be a great hero, champion, and father of heroes. Manusher gives Saul all sorts of riches, as well as lordship over lands from Kabul all the way to the Sea of China. But in the same stroke, he sent the father, Sam, to war. So their reunion was quite short-lived, but hey, people threw saffron and gold after Zal wherever he went, so that's also cool. Yeah, um, can't think of anything funny to add, and I don't have any more insight, so <laughs> well, I mean, you're he doing did... great, sweetie! Well, he did, you know, he did say, oh, come here, let's reunite, let's leave this home that you've known forever to come live with me, and then he also went, right, now that you're here, you can take all of my land and stuff, I'm gonna go fight a war and put down an insurrection, yeah. so... Bye, son. Also, I'm changing your name because you didn't have enough, like, family security issues or identity issues at all. Bye. <laughs> Seriously, how do you talk with people? Yeah, my used to have a different name, but now I'm Zal. I was raised by bird people, and I got all this land I have no idea what to do with because, again, I was raised by bird people. I know what to do in a nest. I don't know what to do with this land. And my dad abandoned me again. <laughs> Actually, Zal was one of the wisest men in the area at the time because he was raised by the Simur. And the Simur is one of the all-knowing birds and has lived such a long time that she knew pretty much everything to impart on him. So growing up, he probably had a better education than most of his friends who were looking out the classroom windows. Um, he was wise. He was beautiful. He, you know, his shock of white hair was de- declared to be his only flaw. 
so when people looked at him, they kind of delighted in the way he looked. Even the king, um, the king of Persia, he when he looked at him, he was delighted to see this man, this you know, this strong, heroic-looking man, was the the son of one of his friends and his commanders. So I don't want to discredit Saul. He had a weird bird people upbringing, and he does bring it up quite a lot. Like, oh, remember that time I was in a nest? But all things I mean, given, yeah. he had a really good kind of start to his life in the sense that he was raised by the all-knowing bird. <laughs> News spread quickly of Psalm's newfound son and his beauty, his heroism, his, you know, I guess people just assumed he was heroic because he looked very strong. But they favored him above all. While traveling through his kingdom, Saul happened upon Kabul, which was actually considered part of India at the time. There, he met with a vassal king, a shrewd man called Mehrab. Mehrab had heard of great Zal's approach and had come to see the young hero with many riches as a greeting. Zal was pleased with his reception and with Mehrab as a whole, and so they feasted and dined the whole night away. Wait, did I did I miss something? Is Zal already an established hero? Like, I know they had the, uh, the prophecy and everything, but, like, did time pass? Like, kind of seems like not really so he hasn't done anything heroic yet he just looks like a hero (laughs) but at the time i think it's the idea of what his future could hold it wasn't so much about you know him being a hero him being having done anything yet it was the promise of him being a hero and it helps that he's the son of one of the great heroes of the time so you kind of just assume that he's going to be one as well and that's why i think they refer to him as a young hero as opposed to just a hero, because there's the promise there that he's going to do something great. I need a hero. I'm holding out <laughs> for a hero at the end of the night. That's just going to be our theme song for the next little while. <laughs> just FYI. While celebrating with Mehrab, one of the courtiers pulled Zal aside and said, In Parda, and unseen by anyone, he has a daughter lovelier than the sun. Lashes like raven's wings protect a pair of eyes like wild narcissi hidden there. If you would see the moon, it is her face. If you seek musk, her hair is its hiding place. She is a paradise arrayed in splendor. Glorious, graceful, elegantly slender. This poem made Saul so intrigued that he longed for a beautiful woman he had never seen. However, the next day when Mehrab asked Saul to come to his palace, Zal refused. He could not dine at the house of an idol worshipper. It was simply not permitted. Yet, his longing for the daughter did not subside. Uh, idol worshipper? Mm. So what if she was a little idol in her worship? I mean, everyone slacks off at some point. <laughs> Just to clarify, <laughs> while I don't know what her specific religious practices were, Zal here is referring to idol worshippers as those who pray or believe in idols or statues that represent gods. In this case, it could mean the Hindu gods. The heroes of our stories are preoccupied with cleansing the world of idol worshippers, evil spirits, demons. But there are some like Sam and Zal who are happy to coexist from a distance. I guess that makes a bit more sense. (laughs) Um, But, you know, it's good to have that clarification. Yes. Well, religion, culture, all of these are huge talking points. And so you don't want to be seen as the man who was fraternizing with the enemy, to, so to say. Ooh. But doesn't that make it like all the more interesting? It's like, we're not meant to be together. Oh. But daddy, I love him. <laughs> we, haven't, we haven't come to that yet. At the moment, it's just 
Zal to himself, thinking, ah, this poem of this woman sounds enticing. Times were tough. There was no Tinder. There was no online dating. It was just poetry and portraits. Sounds pretty romantic, just poems and and stuff. Here, now we have Well, it gets better. Yeah? uh, Because the day after, Mehrab went to the women's quarters, where he saw his wife, Sindok, and his daughter, Rudaba. His wife asked after Sam's son and whether he truly deserved the crown or if he deserved the nest he grew up in. Mehrab sang nothing but the young hero's praises, and he must have sung them well indeed, because Rudaba confessed to her slaves that evening that she was in love with Saul and needed a scheme to have him. <laughs> we make fun of Romeo and Juliet a lot, but at least they saw each other. This is true. These two are going off of whispers. <laughs> the slaves were horrified by this, admonished her, but she was certain that the man she wanted was Saul, and so her servants went to work on her plan. The five slaves donned their prettiest dresses and headed to pick flowers where Saul's party was hunting. Saul, of course, took notice of the pretty girls, and when told that they were the princess's slaves, he made a show of approaching them. We have some back and forth here, with them all playing coy, but eventually Saul figures out why they were there and sends the woman off with jewels, a plan to meet that night, and a warning that if they deceived him, they would be trampled by elephants. And we thought sending love letters was hard. You know it's love when he threatens the postal service with elephants to ensure his letter reaches you. But seriously, be kind to service workers. Yes, I mean, in this case, servants and slave girls, they were the ones who kind of passed off messages between two parties because it was seen as not appropriate. So, I mean, I guess the fact that he trusts them enough to be like, listen, I'm going to meet your mistress at this time. But it's still dangerous enough that if this got out... It would ruin his reputation. It would ruin Rudaba's reputation. So a serious threat is not off the mark. The girls returned to their mistress, and they planned a lovely honeymoon chamber for the two lovers. I mean, if we can call two people who had never seen each other lovers. At least when we talked about Shireen and Khosrau, they had portraits of each other to fall in love with. But it must have been enough, because later that night, Zal arrived to see the beautiful Rudaba and he found her standing on the roof with the full moon behind her. They exchanged some sweet words for strangers, and Rudaba literally let down her hair and implored him to climb it up to the battlements. Instead of taking her up on her strange Rapunzel offer, Zal kisses her hair and said he could never cause her harm. Instead, he took his rope from his page and threw it up the 60 cubits to climb up to the battlements to meet his lover. Let me make sure I understand this correctly. Zal throws his lariat up 60 cubits up in the air, successfully hooks onto the tower and climbs his way up the tower. In other words, Mr. Cowboy Zal lassoed up 90 feet or 154 bananas high. Um, Have you ever tried to throw a rope straight into the air? It does not go well. Now, This bothered me enough where I had to do some research on this and figure out exactly how this could be done. Uh, And unfortunately, I wasn't able to find exact numbers on how high people can throw a lassos up. But I was able to find that an arborist using a throw line and along with a throw weight can reach a stable tie-in point up to 60 feet in the air. Which is very different from a lasso, one, uh, it would be a different technique and it would be, again, have a weight at the end of it. And that's only going up 60 feet. That's still 30 feet short. 
Um, hmm. I don't know how this worked, but I think someone's fudging what actually happened, or they might be making some stuff up here. I don't know. Well, I mean, I think it's hard to believe that her hair was also 90 feet worth of hair, and that while they were making the honeymoon chamber, at no point did they think to also have a ladder or a rope of some kind. She was just like, oh, don't worry, I'll just throw down my hair. I'll deal with the hair thing whenever we end up covering Rapunzel, but I wanted to focus on the fact that how could you throw it up that high? Also, he would have been experienced at throwing it horizontally. Like, this is completely different of trying to get it up. Like, <sighs> Maybe it's one of the magic bird skills he learned when he was living with the bird. I will take the that. The magic bird. I will take that, that the magic bird somehow gave him a magic technique that magically magicked his way up there. <laughs> I mean, well, the bird, I don't actually, the bird flies. So I'm not sure how the bird would have taught him that, but you know. It's one of those things we explain away with magical creature teaches you magical skills and that's that's it. That's the explanation. The point is, for all you romantics out there, if you're going to climb up to your suite's room by climbing the side of the building, if they're up on the ninth floor, maybe consider another method other than just throwing a rope up there and maybe come up with a ladder system or get a little more in- engineering involved because... Uh, I don't think that that's going to work as well for you. <laughs> Hate to break it. <laughs> well, it worked out for Saul because the two spent the night together. And the morning when they set off their separate ways, they began the tedious process of trying to get married. So Saul called his wisest men and gave them a hearty TED Talk on couples and children being God's will. He ended his speech by speaking of Rudaba and asking if his father and King Manusher would agree to their union. Now, the wise men knew that the king did not like Rudaba's great-grandfather, who was, wait for it, a demon. And not just any demon, but Zahok. He is a traditional Zoroastrian monster. Um, In the traditional tales, he's a monster with three mouths, six eyes, three heads. So in the Shahnameh, the hero Feridon traps Zahok in a mountain, and this hero is an ancestor to King Manusher, which is why this goes so deep that the wise men think this union would never be approved because it's the union of an evil demon uh, and a hero's offspring, I suppose. In the Shahnameh as well, Zahok isn't presented as a monster like he is in the, the folk texts or the religious texts. He's presented as a human prince that is led astray by Ahramon a chaotic and evil spirit that has many forms. Eventually, the prince grows two serpents on his shoulders and has a tyrannical evil rule where he kills people in order to feed his serpents their brains. I was just processing everything you just said. I'm like, I think we should have just covered that story. Like, this sounds amazing. (laughs) (laughs) That story is quite long. And it is very interesting, to be honest. It is a very interesting story because it talks about how, you know, Zahok raises to, rises to power, how he takes um, these two princesses as his captives, how he eventually has a prophecy told of a chosen one, a chosen hero. That is honestly a very interesting story, and I will put a link to it on the website because I think people should be reading it as well. But there's so many good stories from the Shahnameh that you have to kind of limit yourself to <laughs> what you can do and what you can cover because we Fair could have enough. done a complete you know episode on just this ferocious monster and how he was killed and all of that wow 
This is this is a Instead, ride. I've chosen a love story. I love it. <laughs> Pun intended. So the men knew that this was going to be a very unlikely match and very unsupportive, but they also knew that a young man in love was one of the greatest forces of stubbornness in the world, and so they promised to do their best to help him. They advised him to write a letter to his father, and so Saul sat down and did just that. Now, Saul didn't write just any ordinary letter. His letter was one that even the most passive-aggressive, pleasy, previously attached, as per my last email, email writers, would be left in awe. He started off by praising God and his father and how noble the dragon slayer Psalm was. And then he recalled, wasn't there a point when Psalm was living in comfort in his silks? While Zal was in the mountains, kind of in a bird's nest? You know, so what if Zal was brought up in a nest? It was as God had wanted, right? Also, Dad, since you are the greatest hero in the world and promised to never oppose my desires after abandoning me, can you agree to marry me to the daughter of Merab? Karma, man. Content with his letter, Zal sent it off to his father, who was less than pleased with the predicament he found himself in. You see, he did feel genuinely awful about abandoning his son. And if he refused to indulge Zal's desires, then he would be painted as a man without a word of honor. If he did agree, he worried what kind of child would be born from a father reared by a bird and a mother, the granddaughter of demons. He went to bed troubled, and in the morning he summoned his greatest priests and astrologers to look into the future of this union. It took a while for the astrologers to consult the stars, consult the zodiacs, you know, look into the star signs, figure out if they were Libras or Scorpios or Geminis. However, eventually, they came to a conclusion on the fate of the two lovers, and they had fantastic news. They prophesied that the child born from the two will be the greatest hero known to man, a man who will conquer the world and whose glory will survive his name. He will extirpate the race of evil from the earth and close down the pathways to hell. As we know, this great hero will eventually be Rostam, and we will circle back to the prophecy in the next episode when we will cover this hero. So stay tuned. This is a generational heroic story, not just about one. I like how we're just going to get the whole through line. We're going to get the father, who, how he was a hero, and why <laughs> the son's a hero, and why the next son's a hero. It's like, how did all these people end up being heroes? We're going to find all of that out. It's because of prophecies. <laughs> Spoiler. We love a good prophecy. I love prophecies. A good chosen one. Yeah. They're either true and they're just fun because it means we're getting an epic hero story or they're not true and it just subverts everything. And I'm here for that. Well, I guess it also changes our definition of hero, which is something we'll talk about later. But Psalm will find out, you know, he actually did a heroic deed. He was known as a dragon slayer. Zal hasn't really done anything nope. at the moment besides be really smart and really cool, I guess. And, you know, climb a tower. Although, I am very impressed with his climbing abilities. No one knows about that, though. It's true. It's a secret. Hmm. So the moment, he's really just a hero in name. He hasn't done... I mean, it's that can be very true. I mean, some heroes are hero in name. Some heroes are hero in deed. His lineage is so that he is expected to be a great hero. He's expected to be this great ruler. And maybe for him... That's what his hero definition comes from, the fact that he's a really wise, intelligent man and a good ruler. So 
Psalm was relieved and sent the good news to Zal before heading off to convince the king of this affair. Meanwhile, Rudabah's mother had confronted her daughter and gone the truth out of her. She in turn told her husband of her troubles, and King Mehrab immediately decided that Rudabah must die. He would make a river out of her blood. His wife was able to speak some sense into him before he could, you know, pull out his sword and stab his daughter to death. We love some good loving fathers. So, we've got another king who's decided to fly off the handle and just uh, threaten people with certain death for very small things. Surely he could just cool it for two seconds to listen to her before making these big threats to her, right? It... It's hard because I do understand that culturally what Rudaba did was unheard of. It was, you know, she forged her own destiny and that's great. But speaking of if, you know, the king of Persia decided to storm Kabul, he would kill everybody there. It wasn't just a case of King Merab and his family because earlier on he absolutely dotes on his daughter. He talks about how beautiful she is, how much he loves her. But here, it's a choice between her and literally everyone else. And so the fact that he's able to make that choice quite quickly makes him a good king, but doesn't really make him a good father. The fact that, you know, his immediate reaction is, well, she must die. He seems very trigger happy for someone who's born in a time when there were no guns. This is at least to say, this is why it's nice not have something that's so easily quick to kill. Like, at least the sword, you have to draw it, walk towards them and stuff. Like, there's a couple more steps involved. Well, I don't really know what Sindokht was expecting because she, when she was speaking to Rudaba and she was you know, getting the story out of her because it wasn't that Rudaba just told her the story. Mm-hmm. It was that she kind of like, you know, confronted her and got the maids to tell her. But even when she was doing that, in her head, she was thinking, ooh, having, you know, Zal as a son-in-law wouldn't be the best, but it wouldn't be the worst. He's a hero. He's well known. Mm-hmm. So what if he's got white hair? You know, it would ally us with some of the greatest rulers of the time. And so she does quickly grab her husband and makes him promise that he'll listen to her, he won't harm their daughter, and told him that it doesn't matter what they do because the news had already reached some. And there was nothing they could do about that. So if anything happened, it was going to happen already. But she also said, wouldn't having Zal as a son-in-law actually be a good thing? The king calmed down a bit and he demanded Rudaba be brought to him. And when he saw his beautiful daughter adorned in all of her finery, he scolded her, but he did not harm her. Mehrab knew that the king of Persia, Manusher, would never accept this union. And so he prayed and prayed, and rightly so, because as soon as Manusher learned of the lovers, he was furious. He was furious about what offspring they would produce. What would the demon child and a white-haired father have? So he sent his messengers to go fetch Psalm and bring him from the warfront, and demanded that Psalm go to Kabul and fight the dragon spawn Mehrab. Why is why is Psalm being punished right here? Like, why not send Zal on this stupid, dangerous mission? Well, I think it's twofold. One, it's because Zal has already, you know, proclaimed his love for Rudaba, Rudaba. So it's not like he would actually go and fight her father. So that's a lost cause. Okay. And two, it's because Psalm is a knight of Persia. He's, you know, a fighter for Persia. He's on this war front. And so if he's given a direct order from the king, he can't just decline it. He can't just say no. So at this point, I think Manusher knows that he's putting Psalm in a very bad position to pick between the king and his family. 
but he does it because it's a necessity. For him, the good of Persia, the future of Persia is what comes first. And Rudaba is not a Persian wife. She's a foreign wife. She would be from Kabul. She'd be from India. And as much as everyone likes Zal, as much as they think he's you know a great guy, he's smart, he still has this marker that makes him different, that makes him other, this white hair. So trusting him and trusting what is essentially a foreign demon, offspring of demon wife, to put it bluntly, is not a good bet to make for the future of, you know, his own kids, his own heirs, his own legacy. And to be fair, Sam did agree to go to war. He just went off. But he I don't think he had any intention of actually fighting. But he agreed because culturally that's what you do. You respect what your orders are. And I think we're going to see why he didn't approach Zal because when the news appro- when the news hit Zal that there'd be an attack on Kabul, he rode at once to meet his father. He greeted his father with all the fury of a young lion cub and began again with the issues of abandonment as a child, how he had done everything for his father and had done everything that had been asked of him. He had done everything God had fated for him. How could Sam punish him? Was this how he'd be repaid for his suffering? Zal stood in front of his father and said that he would have to be cut in half before he would allow Kabul to be taken. Ah, yes, my favorite quality in a hero whininess. Luke and Anakin Skywalker would be so proud. <laughs> At least he never lets his father forget. <laughs> it's, it's the thing that keeps coming back, isn't it? It's like, you hurt me, so I'm, you know, I, you kind of got to let me do what I want. Yeah, yeah. I think he's earned it. I mean, eventually we'll get old, but like at this point, yeah, no, that's still a big enough thing. I feel like you can use that card a couple more times. Yeah, I think it's a good card to have. Like, hey, remember that time you left me in a nest to be raised by birds? It still just comes across as pretty whiny, though. I'm like, ah, this is our great hero. What has he done again? Ah, uh, yes, complain to his father. Right. Yes. Sadly, it does seem that quite often what ends up happening is they have these long speeches where they talk about the glory of God, the glory of their fathers. And then he almost always brings up, you know, oh, the scorching heat and torment I went through was all for you, was all because of you. I don't deny it. It was my fate. But, you know, how could you do this to me? Mm-hmm. This works on Psalm because Psalm does carry great guilt. So he was upset, but he calmed his son down and said, We'll fix this with a letter. I am a fan of letters as much as the next person. But we should keep in mind that during these times, words were a greater tool than swords when it came to diplomacy. Envoys were sent with treasures and letters, and this was a way to plead your cases in some ways because there were social rules that were in place to protect guests and visitors. And also, I guess writing a letter, you can get your emotions down, you can write everything down in a place where you can kind of curate what you say. In this letter, we finally get a glimpse of what heroism Psalm achieved in his life. Psalm does start his letter, you know, glory to God, glory to you, the king. But he also talks about his own beginnings as a hero. He recounts his battle against the dragon of the Kashif River. And how he got the title, One Blow Sam, because he killed the dragon with one blow of his mace. How he had always fought for the glory of his king, but now he was old, and his son would take on the banner of heroism if the king would simply listen to his one request. And with this letter in hand, Saul went off to Persia. I think writing the letter is a smart kind of way to be like, listen, 
we're pledging our allegiance to you as the heroes. We're pledging, you know, we're going to fight for you. We have loyalty. And loyalty was a huge theme. Loyalty is big. You need to have loyalty. And another thing is, it's kind of saying, give us this thing and we'll continue to fight for you. It's a favor we're asking for as your guests, as, you know, as noblemen, as your heroes. But if you do this for us, we will be, you know, indebted to you. We will fight your wars. We'll go on to bring glory to your name. And it does put Manusher in kind of a situation where he's being guaranteed, like, listen, you'll get what you want. Just give us this thing. It's a good place to be in. Yeah. I mean, I think it's good. Meanwhile, back to Kabul, Mehrab has discovered there's a plan to ravish Kabul. And, you know, no one's writing him a letter, so he's left out of the loop of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Instead, he calls his wife to him and furiously declares that the only thing to do is to publicly kill his wife and daughter. So the Persians are placated. I mean, this man has a lot of issues, and his immediate reaction to just kill his family as an answer to all his problems is a big one. In case you hadn't already, go ahead and mark off Crazy King jumps to murder way too quickly on your bingo card. <laughs> Abandonment issues. I mean, we got moms. It's a good thing we have some moms in this story, because otherwise the dads would just be killing everyone. His wife, who we are grateful for that she's in this story, once again came to him and proposed a solution that didn't involve death. She would go to Psalm's state with treasures and plead her daughter's case. Mehrab, while a crazy family butchering man, was still wise and accepted her plan, sending her to Psalm with a massive procession of slaves and treasures. To see the full extensive list, please check out the website because apparently it was over two miles wide of camels and horses and slaves with gold and jewels and everything you could think of. Seriously, Fox has done a really good job getting all these data together you should check it out (laughs) thank you now if someone wants to reward me with two mile uh, procession (laughs) of treasures i will happily accept i'm happy to like put down a nickel and dime down for two miles straight and then give you that how's that i mean no no, thank you not the same right (laughs) (laughs) so sindok met some in his kingdom with all the presence of a respected noblewoman and presented him with her gifts. The two spoke, and Psalm was swayed by the beautiful and intelligent woman. What would her daughter be like if this was the mother, he thought. Back in Persia, Zal reached the king, who magically changed his tune and was willing to accept the petition from the father and son. He called upon another series of astrologers and also heard a prophecy on the son of the two lovers. The astrologers called this future hero a protector of Persia and prompt in his monarch service. The king was not completely sold, though, so he ordered two tests to be given to Saul. Normally, if a character does a 180 like this, I would think the character was either mind-controlled or the character was up to something sneaky. But given the circumstances, I wouldn't take Shapeshifter off the table either. What do you think? It's difficult because I think there's so much emphasis placed on these prophecies, on these star charts, and the fact that the sages came back and they said, listen, the son born from this union isn't going to be a monster. He's going to be this protector of Persia. He's going to be prompt in his monarch service, which, you know, is a weird thing to have a prophecy about. Yeah. It's hard to know if this is what they said because they thought this is what he wanted to hear. And we'll, definitely what we'll do is we'll compare, you know, Rostam to the actual prophecies about him because Rostam is famously known for kind of protecting the monarchy, but also having a bit of a falling out with it and the decline of it. So 
it's either that, you know, he saw this and he, there's nothing good to be had of losing two of his heroes. Instead, he goes along with this and he ends up with three heroes at his service, at his son's service. Mm. So it's kind of like a, a thing he has to think about. His immediate reaction was the fear of having demons, having, you know, this kind of severed connection between the heroes and his knights and his, you know, his country. So having the sages come and kind of tell him, you know, listen, this will all end up well. I think does placate him a bit because you can't go against the will of the stars. You can't go against the will of God. Mm-hmm. It's always about, you know, what what stars are in your favor, if you're fortunate, if you're ill-omened. And here, I think he's kind of going based off of what's being said to him at the time. But he's still cautious, so he gives all two tests. And the first test was that the sages came up to Zal and they all gave him a different saying and he had to explain each one. I would like you, Sparrow, to try and solve them as I say them, okay? Try and think. Just the first thing that comes to mind. Okay. So the first sage says, there are 12 flourishing cypress trees, each with 30 branches. What is he talking about? What are the 12 flourishing cypress trees, each with 30 branches? Mm, One, why are they counting the branches? It seems like a dumb thing to do. (laughs) Um, It's like a riddle. It is like we a have riddle. to see if you're worthy. Am I worthy? I'd like to be. Okay, now, so this is where I come from. Like, often these riddles come back to, like, things abstract, like dates. So when I hear 12, I think of the calendar year. But I don't know if they were using the same calendar. Uh, so I don't know if they would have used 12. So I'm not sure if I would go with that. Um, maybe it's something to refer to a star constellation. I don't know. <laughs> Okay, so it's either the the 12 uh, months or a star constellation. That'll be your answer for that. Yeah. The second one was, there are two fine horses. One is black and one is white. They struggle and fight, but can never overtake the other. Um, either good and evil or night and day. Even the night and day thing symbolizes the eternal struggle of good and evil. So I would go with definitely one of those. Okay, perfect. I'm kind of cheating by picking two. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's okay. I mean, I'll give it to you because I'm, you know, I'm not one of these like sages that's like, oh, you must pick. I'm a more of like a chill sage. I'm like, right, you can pick one. You can give me a couple answers and we'll see, you know, where you fall along the stars. Maybe I'll be half worthy. I don't know. <laughs> okay, the next one. There is another wonder. There's a group of riders that pass by the prince. Sometimes there are 30 and others 29. Sometimes you can see one and others you cannot. 30. Going back to that 30 number. Um, it's entourage. <laughs> so what um, sometimes has 30 and sometimes has 29? Well, going back to my original thought of going, oh, yeah, they're playing with the years and stuff. But mm-hmm. um, there's 31 days in some months. So that can't be that. Also, again, I do not know for sure if they're using the same calendar or not. <laughs> so I'm a little hesitant to go down that route. But that's kind of where my mind goes. Um, Yeah, sure. Let's go with months, like days in a month. Okay, this is good, right. You almost have the girl. Okay, okay. The next one. There is a beautiful meadow filled with green plants, and a man with a scythe cuts down the plants, whether they are fresh and newly sprung or withered and dead. Um, Oh, so what's the man? Is that the question? Mm Mm-hmm. So this man is just repeatedly and consistently just cutting down plants. Uh, Obviously, he is Scyther, the Pokemon, and that is what they're (laughs) Scyther in a rage. In a rage. I don't know. A fire? 
either Scyther or he's talking about fire. Okay. There are two cypress trees in the ocean, and a bird builds nests on each. When he leaves one, it dries up, and when he enters the other, it becomes fresh. In this way, one is always dried, and the other is always fresh. Uh, uh, life and death, but that's exactly what's happening, is one is dead and one is not dead. Um, hmm, actually really don't know on this one. Can I go with a pass? Yes, you can pass. Okay. You won't get the girl, but you we'll we'll let it oh, you pass. Oh no. Oh no. <laughs> what will I do? Listen, if the girl comes with a two mile long stretch of ghoul. Okay, of oh ghouls. yes. You're right. I do want that. <laughs> um let's just go with uh let's go with life and death. Okay. And the final sage, the final question. In the mountains, there was a flourishing city that was abandoned by its people in favor of a thorny patch where they built a new towering city that reached up to the moon. When an earthquake came and toppled their new houses, they longed for their old home. Nostalgia, clearly. It's, you know, grass is always <laughs> greener on the other side. Um, no, in the mountains, they were, I would just say civilization. Like, that's all he's talking about. I don't know what the analogy here mm-hmm. is. Yeah. We'll give everyone else a moment to think. Just pause, go back, listen, listen to Sparrow's contemplation. Think if you would be worthy of getting, you know, two miles long of gold and the beautifulest girl in the world. So Zal thought about his answers. And he decided the first one represented the 12 trees with 30 branches, that those were the 12 months of the year. Woo! The two horses, one light and one dark, are night and day, which exist simultaneously in the heavens. Yeah. The group of riders that sometimes appear to be 30 and sometimes appear to be 29 are the various days of the month. Okay. Which I guess for that time it made sense. For us it doesn't, but for them it made sense. All right. Going good then. I think I'm a perfect score so far. The man in the meadow was time the greatest reaper of all, that strikes the old and young equally. Fire would also strike young and old equally, and Scyther would also (laughs) do that, so I think they just need to get with it. You're going to have to fight the sages on this one. I'm just giving you the answers that he gave. I will accept 50% of all the gold. (laughs) Well, you're not. we haven't finished yet. It's not as if you just got that one wrong. Okay, that's true, that's true. It's all about to go downhill from here. Oh, no. The bird with the two nests, I'll explained, was the sun as it flew from one section of the sky to the next. <laughs> and finally, the flourishing city and the thorny city are the eternal worlds and the fleeting worlds. We leave one for the other and regret it. Okay, I'll take 25% of the gold and that's my final offer. Nope, I'm afraid it's all going to our hero, Zal, who so far, you know, hasn't done many heroic things, but we will still call him a hero. I bet he just heard those riddles before when he was, like, hanging out in the bird people. And then he was just like, mm-hmm, mm, know this, know this. I failed uh, a test in the fifth grade because of this one, but I know it now. So Well, I don't really, like, I understand why he's being given a wisdom test. Kind of like a trial because of, you know, the groom's trial, the bride trials. It's a famous trope. But, I mean, he was raised by the mythical all-knowing bird. It is important to note, though, that at no point yet has Zal used the two feathers he was given by the Simurgh. So he's doing this all on his own so far. It's just him using his resources, him using his words, him using his characteristics, him just being himself. 
With that, he concluded his explanation and his test, leaving the king and the sages in astonishment. The next day, there was a massive tournament held, and the king asked which of them would fight Zal in single combat. It became glaringly obvious from the moment Zal charged at the warriors that any of them would lose to him. He was considered not just a hero, but a monster of war. Again, you know, hasn't done anything heroic or yeah. fought in a war yet, but still, it's, it's the looks that count so far. The courtiers and the king were all pleased, and Zal was gifted with various treasures and a promise to go marry the woman he loved. Given Zal's wisdom and strength, as well as the prophecy regarding his child, Manusher was in very good spirits and sent the youth back to his father and to his future bride in Kabul. Thankfully, when the news reached Mehrab, he didn't threaten to kill anyone. He just praised his clever wife without any mention of how close he had come to, you know, just killing all of them. The two families united, and Zal and Reduba were married with everyone's good wishes. It wasn't long before she fell pregnant and had a very difficult pregnancy. Their son, the hero of Persia, would not be born, and as time passed, she grew weaker and weaker. But that is a story for another day. No, no, cliffhanger! I wonder what happens next. It's okay. So we'll see some actual heroic feats. And just to close off, I just wanted to mention why I chose these three heroes. We have Sam, who's kind of a traditional, old-fashioned hero. He's the one that, you know, slays the dragons. He's loyal to a fault, to his king. He has these kind of, this kind of image of what a hero, a knight, a man should look like. And he has his flaws. He had his worry about his son, and so he abandoned him. And then he spends the rest of his life atoning for that. We have Zal, who is more of a romantic hero in the sense that he is charismatic. He's loved by people. He's wise. He falls into this great love story. And so he's that kind of hero. And then we're going to see his son, Rostam. And we're going to see what kind of hero he is. And I think he covers the third type of hero, which is both the tragic hero, like Achilles, but also just the kind of hero that we know from the Greek stories of the Hercules, the King Arthurs, the St. Georges, the kinds that just go out and fight. And I think that's what we're going to really see with him. And so we get to cover the three different types, at least in this series, of heroes because there are so many different types of heroes in the Shaname. There are the female heroes, there are the ones who just talk their way through problems, there are the ones who just pull out their sword and fight and slaughter. And so it gives us a good mix, a good idea, and a good jumping off point for the rest of the series. Mm-hmm. Because we are covering these three stories, which was one continuous epic, and each of them are quite long, we're going to hold off on our five fantastic finds until we've concluded these three stories. And we'll have a special Five Fantastic Finds episode covering all the good nuggets of information we found along the way. As always, if you want to see the show summary, notes, and the Five Fantastic Finds, please check them out on our website, talesfromtheenchantedforest.com. If you want to hear more from us, join us on Twitter at FromEnchanted or Instagram at talesfromtheenchantedforest. Or, if you're old school like Sparrow, you can email us at talesfromtheenchantedforest at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your questions, comments, and suggestions. So if, if you have anything to share, please don't hesitate. And remember, travelers, if you enjoyed what you heard here today and what we do here, please give us a review on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. It helps the podcast grow and reach new travelers to join us on these adventures. We'll give you a big shout out and our eternal gratitude. In the meantime, travelers, remember... 
there is always a place for you in the enchanted forest. Thank you.